Um, good morning again to you all. Uh, my name is Conrad Kiros. As was mentioned, I serve as the RUF campus minister at SMU in Dallas, um, which, is, which is a great challenge and also a great p- privilege. I, I really love the work that I get to do um, and also love being able to be here with you all. Um, it's always nice. I was here um, in, in, at the end of last year. It's always nice when they invite you back, so it's a pleasure to be uh, with you. Um, if you're able, please uh, stand with us for, for the reading of, of God's Word. Um, Last time I was here, I preached on Mark 5, so I figured it was only fitting to preach Mark 6 uh, this time. So um, forgive me for for a long text, but I think it'll be a good one for us. So Mark 6, uh, starting in verse 30. It says that the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 um, baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go um, before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were all utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you um, for the word of the Lord. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, illuminate it to us this morning. Um, Apply it to us. Help us to, to see who you are and to grow. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, uh, I saw a meme. Um, If you're of a certain age, a meme is like a digital cartoon. Um, And it said this. It said, 98% of modern relationships is deciding where we're going to eat. 98% of relationships boil down to figuring out what we're going to eat. Of course, that's an exaggeration. um, But does that sentiment resonate with you at all? Trying new places, thinking of new things to eat. Um, that can be fun for a while, but it gets pretty exhausting, doesn't it? 
I mean, you can have the best meal in the whole world and feel totally satisfied, but a few hours later, you're right back on that endless treadmill of thinking about food, preparing food, eating all over again. Well, a guy I went to high school with, um, he invented a solution to this problem. He was a single tech nerd living in San Francisco. He was tired of throwing away hundreds a month on food, and so he concocted a formula. He collected 35 of the most vital chemicals the human body needs, and he created a cheap, um, easy-to-prepare, perfectly nutritious alternative to food. And my friend hasn't eaten a meal in years. He doesn't eat. Raw nutrients plus water in a 100% healthy, sippable sludge. The the company is called Soylent. You can read about it in The New Yorker or see clips of of my friend promoting it on TV. It's been billed as the antidote to obesity, uh, the perfect solution for military and space expeditions, even the cure for world hunger. But have you ever heard of it? Or what about this? If I offered you a lifetime supply of this thing, Soylent, um, would you take it? (laughs) I didn't think so. Um, People care a lot about what they eat. In fact, it's actually a a tale as old as time. You see, in the background of of this story we just read in Mark 6, the feeding of the 5,000, is an Old Testament story about eating from Exodus 16 and Numbers 11. Dates back 3,500 years. You may remember this scene. Moses had just miraculously led God's people through the Red Sea and out of the land of Egypt, where they had been slaves for hundreds of years. But shortly after receiving their freedom, the Israelites are trudging through the desert And they begin to grumble. And what's their grumbling about? Food, of course. (laughs) After this amazing act of God's power, a few days later, God's people, their stomachs grow bigger than their hearts. And they complain. This is why you led us here, Moses, to starve in the desert? We want to go back to Egypt. And do you remember what, what food God's people missed the most? Cucumbers. Now, the Bible is not always funny. Um, uh, it's not funny often, but it's hard to miss the irony in a scene like this. It's like, really? The cucumbers? These people would willingly take up the shackles of slavery again. Well, you know, as long as there'll be like tasty cucumbers and melons. <laughs> but, but how often is that you and me? How often do we miss what God is up to completely? Well, well to finish this story, um, God hears their grumbling complaint and he meets them with kindness. God gives them bread to eat. And y'all, Jesus does the same thing here in Mark 6. And you might be thinking, like, bread? That's kind of like, wah, wah. Um, But this bread that God gave um, to the people in the desert, it was no ordinary bread. It's like Willy Wonka or Harry Potter bread. God graciously gives his grumbling people manna, the bread of heaven. In the Jewish tradition, it's said that the manna tasted like whatever the eater desired it to taste like. It's perfectly healthful, perfectly satisfying. And then Jesus, when he sees a crowd gathered in a similar wasteland, he has compassion on them. And he recreates that miraculous meal. So our question today, y'all, is, is what does this all mean? I think there are three stories that are all working together in Mark's narrative. I imagine most of you are familiar with most, if not all of them. Um, these three stories, Jesus calms a storm He feeds the 5,000, and he walks on water. We'll discuss all three tonight, but I'll I'll focus mostly on these latter two, the ones we just read in Mark 6. But but here's the payoff. 
I want you to see that Mark is strategically positioning these three stories together to show us something unique about Jesus and his redemption. Namely, that he's not just a powerful prophet, but a compassionate savior and king. So three points this morning, if you're a note taker, um, they're all S's. Uh, The sign first, then the symbol, and finally the sensation. So three points, sign, symbol, sensation. So first, the sign, which is power over nature. Well, you might have heard what I just said, and you might be thinking, how in the world are these three stories supposed to communicate one message? Like, they're very different, right? And yet yet they share some some similarities, um, some significant features in common. As is so often the case with God's word, y'all, so much of the deep meaning in the stories is freighted in the details. And y'all, that's why for stories like these, for reading the Gospels, imagination is so important. Yes, imagination You don't really hear too much about imagination, you know, after elementary school, right? Um, But it's a gift. It's a gift from God. I'm assuming for for a lot of you, these stories are so familiar as to be almost boring. Am I right? Did some of you feel like we were reading them? Your mind just kind of checked out. Your brain was like, yeah, you know, I know this one. Covered this ground many times. I'm all good here. I wonder what we're having for lunch. (laughs) Here's the thing. Familiarity and lack of imagination can be the death to reading the Bible for all it's worth. So so here's what I want to invite you to do with me this morning. I I want you to imagine how it would have felt to be a part of these crowds witnessing these signs. How would you have felt if you were one of the disciples in this storm? Imagine it. Imagine the green grass on that countryside field where Jesus feeds these people. Imagine being in a boat And that ghost-like shape rises from the mist in the light of the dawn. Can you picture it? Now, it doesn't take an expert to see that these stories share the theme of Jesus' power over nature, right? A violent thunderstorm breaks out on the sea so that professional sailors fear for their life. And Jesus wakes up for a nap, shushes the wind and the waves, and they go immediately limp. Perfect stillness and silence. And then a crowd of 5,000 men, which probably means more like 15 or 20,000 people, come out into the wilderness to hear Jesus teach. And the disciples, like, they start like freaking out about the logistical nightmare of figuring out how to get this many people fed. And Jesus makes an abundant meal out of nothing, a few biscuits and a couple sardines. And then the disciples are on the sea again, and the wind comes up against them, and they're tired. And they see Jesus walking on top of the water without any struggle or strain. And he comes into their boat, and immediately the resistance ceases, and they're on the other side. That's power, right? Unique, supernatural power. But here's the point. Jesus' power is not just impressive, it's uncanny. It's not just impressive, it's uncanny. Do you know that word? It means it's mysterious, not just in an amazing way, but in like an unsettling, disquieting, dangerous kind of way too. His power doesn't just make people happy. Sometimes it makes them ask him to leave him alone. Have you considered that side of Jesus' power before? As I mentioned, I want you to use your imagination this morning. I want you to picture yourself in that thunderstorm. You're on a boat. The waves are crashing over and filling the hull. 
How would you feel? And then this man, your best friend, Jesus, speaks to the storm and it obeys him. Picture yourself on that hillside. Thousands gathered on the green grass, the light of day fading, knowing that you and everyone else is hours away from civilization and there won't be any stores open that late. How do you feel? And then you see your friend Jesus take five little loaves and two small fish casually, without anxiety, bless them, and distribute them to 20,000 people who eat to their heart's delight and leave behind heaps and heaps. And I want you to picture yourself on that boat as the dawn is breaking, your arms and your back exhausted from hours of rowing against the wind, your face dripping sweat, and in the silent darkness, you see a figure coming out to meet you, standing upright on the waves. How do you feel now? And you realize your friend Jesus, who you talk to and eat with and sleep right next to, this person is walking on the water as if it were a solid sea of glass. And y'all, Mark says that happened within a matter of days, maybe a matter of hours. It's like being hit over and over in the brain with a sign. Like, what? Who is this? Even the strongest forces of nature bend to his will. It's quite a sign. But but what does it mean? That brings us to to point two this morning, the symbol. Symbol is the new exodus. One of the details that I I find really interesting in this story, there's so many interesting details, but one that I've always been struck by um, is that even the disciples needed a retreat. And Jesus knew it, and he provided it for them. Did you see that in verse 31? It says, And Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So so here's kind of a commercial interruption for application. Um, If Jesus and the disciples needed to rest and recharge, so probably do you. Y'all, it's Jesus who sees these guys and loves them and has compassion on them and says, No, like, y'all have done some really good work here and are probably exhausted. Come away with me. Let's eat and sleep. Do you know that Jesus wants you to eat and sleep and rest in him too? Someone in this room needed that reminder this this morning. But it's also super fascinating that that Jesus' plan for a disciple's retreat was thwarted. We we actually see this dynamic often throughout Mark's gospel. Um, Jesus is willing to be interrupted in order to serve people who are needy. He's willing to be interrupted in order to serve needy people. So I think here's another, another um, application for us. First of all, do you know that about Jesus' heart? He's okay being interrupted. In fact, if he's in control of everything and commands us to ask him for whatever we need, we're actually not interrupting him at all. Beloved, you're not inconveniencing Jesus by coming to him needy. That's our fear, right? And it's a legitimate one because most people don't have a ton of time or capacity to handle our neediness and our brokenness. But Jesus does. Jesus does. And he's inviting you to do just that, to come to him anytime, all the time, in all your need and sorrow, in all your shame and fear and doubt, in your desire to be seen and comforted and loved. 
And secondly, if you're a Christian, are you willing to be interrupted like Jesus, to love and serve those who are needy? Look again with me at verse 34. It says this, And Jesus had great compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. I think this verse not only gives us another great glimpse into Jesus' heart, um, but it also helps, understand, helps us answer the question that we asked earlier, um, what does this all mean, okay? So you might not know this, um, but that line is a re- repetition of a line that recurs throughout the Old Testament. We see it in a few places here, some, if you're, if you're a note taker. Uh, Numbers 27, 1 Kings 22, Zechariah 13, and most famously in Ezekiel 34, The image is this, God's people, like sheep, scattered all over, unsafe, unprotected, cold and hungry and lost and in need of a shepherd, of a king, to come and save them and bring them into safety and give them the food and shelter and care and love they need. See, Jesus looks at this huge crowd, and Mark tells us he's reminded of that Old Testament prophecy and promise. The good shepherd The true king of Israel has arrived, and the sheep are being called home. Friends, do you feel like sheep without a shepherd? Do you feel like you're stuck out there in the cold and the rain with no one to come and help you? Do you feel like all the pressures of this life are stacking up against you? Do you feel like you're homeless and looking for a home? Beloved, Jesus sees you, and he knows you, and he's calling you into an everlasting rest. Here's my big theological point this morning. You know these stories, but you've probably read over the significance of the symbolism embedded within them. You probably know these stories, but you might have read over the significance of the symbolism embedded in them. Y'all, the point is not just that Jesus is powerful over nature, though he certainly and obviously is. The deeper point here is the one that the disciples keep missing. It's that Jesus is the new and greater Moses, and he's leading God's people through the new and greater Exodus. So let's go back to Exodus. (coughs) Excuse me. Remember Exodus. God's people were enslaved in Egypt 400 years in a land not their own, working tirelessly for a tyrant who neither knew them nor loved them. But God... Those two powerful words, right? Life-altering words. But God, he saw them. He had compassion on them. And he sent them a deliverer. And that deliverer's name was Moses. And what did Moses come and do? Miraculous signs. And what kinds of signs did he perform? Signs of power over the natural order right? Water to blood, gnats and locusts and storms of hail, boils and diseases, even darkness and death. And then God did two amazing things through Moses. He led the people of Israel out of slavery by having them cross the impassable Red Sea. How? By harnessing the power of a storm and walking through it like it was dry land. And then God saved his people from their enemies, the Egyptians, and also the enemy of death. How did he do that? By protecting them like sheep and feeding them the miraculous bread of life. Can you see it now? You see, y'all, Jesus isn't just like doing tricks. 
He's not just flexing his show muscles. He's establishing his identity as the one true God, the greater Moses, the final deliverer of salvation who will lead God's people out in a new exodus, out of the slavery of sin and death into the abundance of a new and eternal life. Beloved, if you're lost and afraid, stuck and enslaved, hopeless and ashamed, sad and dismayed, hear the good news of Jesus spoken over you today. He is the God who is powerful over all the forces of this world, even sin and death. And he is the greater Moses who brings salvation and new life and rest to all who come to him. Will you come to him? But if you come, and I hope and I pray that you do, you should know who it is you're coming to. The the brilliant author C.S. Lewis gave us this beautiful uh, illustration in that book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You remember the scene um, with the the children running across these beavers, okay? Um, And the children find out about Aslan, and Aslan is, is the God figure in these stories. And one of the children asks, she says, Aslan is a lion, right? And the beaver answers, yes, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Beloved, I want you to come to Jesus. I also want you to know who it is you're coming to. Which brings us to, to the third and final point today, the sensation, fear and wonder. So, so I've asked you to use your imagination a bunch of times this morning. Um, and, and here's the real takeaway for that. There's an element to Jesus that I think you and I often miss. And it's this combination of emotions that comprises the title of this sermon, Fear and Wonder. Fear and Wonder. That's a sensation. Now, I chose that word deliberately um, because a sensation is something that happens to you when you come in contact with something else, right? The sensation is something that happens to you when you come in contact with something else. You, You can't help it, but you certainly feel it, like deep in your bones. If you come into contact with the real and living Jesus, you get the sensation of awe and mystery, of fear and wonder. Look with me again at how this this series of stories ends. Uh, Verses 48 through 51 says this. Jesus meant to pass by them. Remember, he's, he's walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got in the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. Did you hear it? Remember, the disciples were Jesus' closest comrades. They looked at him and they felt terrified. Literally, in the Greek, this word is disturbed, it means troubled in the soul. They saw who he really was and they felt astounded, utterly amazed totally lost for words. And y'all, this isn't the first time. 
Already in Mark's gospel, this is actually the eighth time that Mark tells us the people were in awe. We're only in chapter 6. Eight times he's told us people encountered the real Jesus and they felt overwhelmed, flabbergasted, shocked, astonished, even afraid because of Jesus. I think Mark is pushing us to ask ourselves the same question. Do we feel fear and wonder when we look at Jesus? Do you feel fear and wonder when you look at Jesus? Because if you don't, you're probably not seeing him. You're probably imagining the wrong guy, looking at a false illusion in your mind or the culture is made for you, which is what the Bible calls an idol. If you don't feel that combination of fear and wonder, it's likely that you fashioned a God in your own image, a neat and tidy and safe little idea that suits you, and you haven't allowed God to be God, Jesus to be all that he is. We're going to end this morning with the good news, but but I don't want us to rush past the danger here. It's a real and present danger for all of us, preaching to myself as much as to you. Search your own heart. Am I really seeing Jesus for who he is and not the convenient, false counterfeits of my own imagination? Am I coming to him in fearful awe and awesome wonder? Are we as a church here at Redeemer Arlington committed to worshiping the real king? I can't answer those questions for you, but I want you to consider them deeply this morning. Because here's what's at stake. A lot of people saw Jesus and missed the point. A lot of people throughout these stories saw Jesus and missed the point. They saw the signs and the symbols, but they couldn't connect the dots. Even the disciples missed him. That's how this this little pericope ends. Verse 52, it says, They did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Beloved, I don't want you to miss Jesus. I don't want you to miss Jesus. I don't want you to become an expert in theology, but miss Jesus. I don't want you to become a rock star in service, even in gospel ministry, and miss Jesus. I don't want you to be the kindest, sweetest, smiliest person on the planet and miss Jesus. Fear and wonder. Fear and wonder, that's what it feels like to see Jesus. But here's the good news to take away with you this morning. Though the disciples didn't always see it, ultimately they did. And if you ask him to show you himself, so will you. You see, Jesus came down from glory to take on our human flesh, not just to perform miraculous signs or to display his power, but to become humiliated to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And do you know why he did that? Why did he do that? So that weak people like you and me, those who have been enslaved to sin, blinded by sin, might receive forgiveness and grace. But it's not only that. The good news also is that Jesus came to give his people life and to give them life to the full with him as our new king. See, all Jesus wasn't just powerful. He was prophesied. His miracles weren't just extravagant. They were highly symbolic. 
And he, and he wasn't just another Moses, but he is the greater Moses. And he came to save his people from their sin and to be their shepherd king who gives them eternal life and rest forever and ever. Y'all, when we see our sin before his power, we feel a holy fear. When we see his grace and his love, we feel awesome, awesome wonder. I'll end with this. The uh, New Testament commentator, uh, R.T. France, um, once said, For those with eyes to see it, these stories in Mark 6 will be a foretaste of the messianic banquet, an introduction to the communal life of the kingdom of God. Scripture says it too. Revelation 2.17 says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And Revelation 19, the very end of the Bible, paints for us a picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. How does it all end? How does this whole world, how does it all end in a meal? A feast. Not just of bread, but of all the glorious delicacies of heaven. With all of God's people gathered around the table of the family meal. With eating and drinking and celebration and laughter and joy. Friends, Jesus is giving these people and he's giving us a small foretaste of that reality. We glimpse it here, but we will experience it there. We taste it now, but we will drink deeply and eat to our heart's delight then. We have faith now, but then we'll have sight. Now it's the darkness of fear and wonder. Then it will be the delight of the glorious presence of the king. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, we come before you in fear and wonder. We come before you um, amazed, amazed. Amazed that you love us and care for us. Amazed that you see us all the way down and yet forgive us and desire to be with us. We thank you for Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see him, to see the real Jesus, the risen king, in all his awesome wonder. Help us, Lord, to remember that he loves us, that he has given himself for us, um, that the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Lord, we thank you that you are a kind of God who loved your people so much that when he looked at them, he said, sheep without a shepherd. Thank you that you are the true king who is leading us into rest. Help us to believe it, to trust in it, to walk in your ways, for you are the king. We pray all these things in the name of the king, Jesus. Amen.